Welcome to Built by a Boss. I'm your host, Evelyn Brooks, journalist, award-winning producer, author, founder of In My Solitude LA. On this podcast, you'll hear unique origin stories, growth strategies, and meaningful insights from successful female founders and entrepreneurs who are leading conscious businesses and creating groundbreaking careers with intention. On our show today, financial behaviorist, Jaquette M. Timmons. She focuses on the human side of money and is committed to getting you to see that you don't manage money, you manage your choices around money in life and business. Her work has been featured on Good Morning America, Oprah.com, CNN, HLN, Fox, Black Enterprise, NPR, and The Wall Street Journal. On this episode, we talk about a lot. How to prepare and protect your business from the unexpected, like the coronavirus. How understanding your relationship with money can improve your business. Why an incorrect pricing model cuts into your profits. And what you should know before you jump into entrepreneurship for the first time. And there's so much more. Thank you for listening and enjoy the conversation. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Built by a Boss, Jaquette Timmons. I am so delighted to be here, Evelyn. (laughs) Let me just tell you, you are just one of my favorite people. Um, You have such an infectious laugh, a great personality. And you talk about one of my favorite subjects in the world, money. (laughs) I mean, you have really carved out your own niche in this category. Can you give folks who are not familiar with your work, but who should be, a quick intro that explains who you are and what you do in the world? Sure. I'm Jacquette Timmons. I work as a financial behaviorist. And it's really interesting that we're having this conversation at this moment in time in 2020, because it was this exact moment in time in 1987 that sparked my interest in behavioral finance and behavioral economics, although I did not have those terms at my disposal at that time. I was a year out of undergrad and saw up close and personal the crash of 1987 and was really fascinated by the different responses to it, much like we have different responses to what's happening today. Mm -hmm. And for me, there were people, I kid you not, that literally, if they could have jumped out of a window because of how much money they lost for themselves and for their clients, they would have. And yet there were other people that were also incredibly calm. And that fascinated me because I wondered, well, what do those, if you think of it as a spectrum, what do those people at the opposite ends of the spectrum know that the other doesn't? And why are they behaving the way that they do? (laughs) So that's the, you know, the, the seed that really sparked my curiosity around that. And I have built over the years, my body of work around you know, taking behavioral finance and economics out of academia and really having it be the center of the conversation at the table, if you will, and getting people to understand how this shows up in your day-to-day life, very specifically in the choices that you make and how those choices are driven by your emotions. So the more you are aware of why you do what you do, the better then informed you can be around the choices that you make and the less susceptible you are 
to only thinking about money through the lens of it being a mathematical problem to be solved. Because if that were the case, <laughs> every challenge, the financial challenge, every financial question that you had could be easily, you know, calculated either with a calculator or a spreadsheet. And obviously those answers are not that easy to come by. Absolutely. So I'm sure that is the true challenge of your work because you have to do some digging. People have to do some soul searching. Do you find that there is resistance to that initially? Like how do you get people to make those connections? Well, what's interesting is that when it comes to my work, especially with the one-on-one coaching and with that, I work one-on-one with singles, couples, and entrepreneurs. And the interesting thing is I don't have to do any coaching around the need for the soul searching because I'm never their first stop. They come to me because they've already tried to solve their problem or get the question that they have answered or overcome the challenge. And they've come to me because all of those other efforts, whether they've done it with another professional, whether they tried to do it on their own, has fallen short. And they're like, there's something else that's going on here that I don't see. And given that they know that I talk about you know, one's relationship with money and how that that's not a woo-woo kind of a thing. Like, let's be very strategic about its impact. That's why they come to me. And so I don't have to convince them of the need to dig deeper than what's on the surface. They already know that there's a need for that. My job is to kind of um, co-create with them a new reality. And then in some instances, hold their hands because it's not always easy to accept some of the things that you might discover around your relationship with money. So that, that may sound really abstract. So let me give an example. I have a client who, you know, for, I think in all, for all intents purposes, has a really great business, right? As small businesses go, $2 million in revenue. She actually could be doing more. Yes. And one of the reasons that she isn't doing more is because she's not charging as much. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. And we're working on her business model and we're working on her pricing strategy. But one of the pieces that it fundamentally comes down to is she's done all of the right things in terms of the schools that she's attended, in terms of going and getting her MBA at, you know, one of the most prestigious schools you can go to for that, working in-house other places and then launching her own business Mm -hmm. and doing really well. But what that then means is she's becoming, from a financial standpoint, the exact person that her family, when she was growing up, always said, you don't want to be like that. You don't want to be rich because rich people are this and they're that. So all of these negative connotations. So then how do you reconcile when, again, from a numbers standpoint, you become that rich person? Mm -hmm. And so she didn't realize to what extent that she was actually kind of holding herself back because of this narrative that says rich people are bad. Well, what do you do when you then become... It's a mindset, but I don't think you can think your way through mindset issues. I think you need to be aware of the mindset issue, and then you've got to put in place some strategies and some systems and some processes to kind of address it. But it was the absence of the awareness that, ah, I didn't even see that this was playing out in my business. That's really, really, really good. So it's literally like the relationship that you have with money or what you learned about money through your family as you're going through your life and you, you're basically doing all the same things until you get to the root of what that, that dynamic is and how it's impacting you, you may be 
almost literally retracing the footsteps of the people that you didn't want to follow in the first place. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think so often because you know, so much of the context and the circumstances look different. We think that we're behaving differently. We think that we're making different choices. But if you get under, under the surface or under the hood, if you will, you realize that, oh, there are a lot of similarities here. And if I want things to be different, I need to make different choices. Oh, boy. That is, that is so good because there is a disconnect, I find, when Sometimes you may have all of the material things that you want or that you think you need. But at the same time, the feeling you may have about your life may still be based in kind of a a, a poverty mindset. And so Mm -hmm. there is a connection to that relationship that you have with money and how do you move forward and almost use it as a personal development tool as you're building your business. Oh my God. Yes. I think, I think being an entrepreneur and money are two of the, whether you want it to be or not, two of the best personal development tools that we have access to, because you will learn so much about yourself through the process. (laughs) Girl, (laughs) say word. (laughs) Good Lord, you will learn so much about yourself as you navigate it's like the waters of money. Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And actually I tell that to people, you know, there is a, a very particular exercise that I do in my workshops. And the purpose of the exercise is to highlight for people the difference between seeing and noticing and to get them to understand that just because you see something every day doesn't mean that you notice some of the details that once I point it out to you, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe that was always there. And I say the same thing when it comes to money, just because you use your money every day in whatever form, cash, debit card, credit card, online transactions, it does not mean that you know what you have, what you tend to do with what you have or why. And so my job is to help to amplify people's self-awareness around those things so that they can make better, smarter choices. So there's also, for me, the idea of respect for my money and Mm -hmm. respect for my time and the energy that is required to create money and then to come around and, and think about how am I spending that money? So kind of like the experience of money, respecting it, and, and just really paying attention to it like you would in any other relationship. Absolutely. No, I totally, I totally <laughs> sign on for that. And, you know, one of the things that I also remind people of is that your relationship with money is going to be one of the longest relationships that you will ever have. And that, that, you know, I mean, mean, it really is. And the only thing that competes with it is your, your parents, you know, Mm -hmm. if you were raised by your birth parents and if not, then whomever, you know, had that role for you that, and maybe if you are the youngest and you're, if you have siblings, other than that, (laughs) money will be the one of the longest relationships that you'll have in your life. And I, get, I try to get people to, to keep in mind a few things. One, because it is a relationship and it is one that you will have for a very, very long time, it's going to evolve. It's going to change. So your relationship with money today hopefully looks very different than what it was five years ago. 
And hopefully it will look different five years into the future and hopefully in a more positive way. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that because if you think about it from the standpoint of it being a relationship that you may want to treat as you would one that is of significance and importance to you, Although although I know that there are many religious traditions that will say, you know, the love of money is evil, if we think about it from the standpoint of we have a relationship with it and we want it to be a loving relationship, what about if we flip that on the head and said, if I respected my money more, if I loved my money more, if I treated it like a, a relationship that was important to me, what would my outcomes be in different areas of my life? Yes. I love this because it's the difference between going to check your bank account and being terrified and going to check your bank account and, and being available and having information and not being in a, in a space of, oh my God, that came through last night. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> and what I, I, mean, also, I do. I completely understand. And I will also say this. If you do feel terrified, Acknowledge that feeling, but then also make sure that you separate the feeling of being terrified and don't project that onto, oh, I'm a bad person. I think mm. that's the, that's the, that's where we can get caught up that, you yes. know, look, you know, stuff happens, right? And sometimes stuff happens that is completely out of your control or that you were woefully unprepared for. And you may indeed have that terrified moment. And so I don't want anyone to listen and have that terrified moment and then feel bad about having the terrified moment. But my point is feel it, acknowledge it, and then look at the facts that are contributing to it and then ask yourself, all right, this sucks. Well, what am I supposed to do next? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) absolutely. Well, the other thing too is it's an opportunity to see where you need to get more information. Absolutely. And there's one question that I ask. I did not come up with this question. So uh, shout out to John Henry, who was the first person that I heard say this in this way, in this context. But he was like, whenever you have a money problem, you don't quote unquote have a money problem. You have a resourcefulness problem. Hmm. And so whenever I am in that moment where I'm like, oof, this is getting really, really tight. Right. Right. <laughs> I ask myself, where do I need to be more resourceful? Yeah. So I think that is amazing. And it kind of ties into everything that's happening right now on two fronts. We have millions of women around the world that are either starting businesses or they're running businesses. They pass the million dollar mark, you know, all of that. But I think that there's something really important about the work that you're doing specifically for women who are getting ready to take that plunge into entrepreneurship, besides coming to book an appointment with Jacquette Timmons, um, (laughs) what are some other things that they need to think about in terms of their relationship with money before they jump into entrepreneurship? So one thing would be to do a little bit of self examination, self-discovery, and never with the intent of coming at it from a judgmental standpoint, but out of curiosity and really trying to understand, well, how do you treat money today? How do you make your decisions today? What do you do when you are under pressure? Like, how do you make your decisions, especially when you are under pressure? 
Because whether your office is in your home or it's outside, when you cross that threshold, whether it's going from one room to another or (laughs) you're just going to a table in your house Mm -hmm. uh, or you're literally physically going to a place, you don't all of a a sudden become a different person. Mm -hmm. So how you make decisions regarding money on the personal front is going to be exactly how you do it when it comes to business. The second thing, and this may be a little counterintuitive, one of the best business decisions that you can make is to make sure that your business, especially if you can do this from the outset, that your business is taking care of your personal financial health too. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is because the way in which many people start their businesses, right? So you're either starting it as a side hustle while you're working full-time somewhere, you're starting it because you've been downsized and you've got a severance and you're like, you know what, maybe this is now the time for me to do what I've always wanted to do. Or maybe you have this side hustle and you're like, I'm going to do it now. Right. Or maybe you've got a significant other at home that can cover over the household overhead and your business doesn't have the pressure of meeting that. Or maybe you just come from a wealthy family and again, you don't, your business doesn't have the pressure of having to meet certain responsibilities. The way in which you start your business and how you approach your pricing and your sales process shows up in the financial health of your business. And you can have a business that is healthy by measured by, you know, it's cash flow positive and it's profitable. But if that's not trickling down to your own personal financial health too, then you don't really have a healthy business. And what I mean by personal financial health too, are you paying yourself? Are you paying yourself consistently? Are you paying yourself as much as you could given how well your business is doing? If you've been pouring your own personal savings into your business, at what point are you going to say, you know what, I need to start repaying myself back and replenishing my savings? Or if you've stopped contributing to what would now probably be your rollover 401k and you have an IRA someplace, if you've stopped contributing to that altogether, when are you going to start recontributing to that? Because a mistake that I know I made and a mistake that I see other people making and I am working so that we all turn the tide on this mm-hmm. is I want to disrupt the narrative that says you give your business everything, including your future. And I don't want people to do that. Yes, that is so, so true, which is the perfect segue to this moment that we're in, which I also believe will be an evergreen conversation, but it's topical in the sense of you have a business, you're starting a business. How do you make sure that you are financially prepared for the unexpected? Because that is also a part of taking care of your health inside of your business. So in this moment, the coronavirus is just running around the world, wreaking havoc, and everyone is impacted and concerned and thinking about, well, how does this affect my business? And, you know, how does this affect my store or my event? And um, when is this going to be over so we can all get back to business? The stock market's going crazy, all of this. And so it's another moment in my mind when I see there is an opportunity here because it allows us to think about financial preparedness. How do you feel that we can look at our money and our relationship with it in this moment from a place of 
planning, not panicking, but also staying in this moment of, okay, what can I do to prepare if I haven't already? Yeah. And so (laughs) this is where I think if you've worked in corporate America, um, some of the things that you probably either learned from that or saw there can really be helpful. And one of those activities uh, is business continuity planning. Mm -hmm. And so I think the idea of you know, thinking about from an operational standpoint, what would you do if you or your team got sick? Like, how does your business continue? And then there's the financial piece of it, which is what do you do if the people that you serve, what if they begin to pull back? So I think it is first pausing and saying that right now, depending upon where you are in the world, and if you're in the States, depending upon what state you reside, now this is a really good time (laughs) to take stock. (laughs) Right Right now. (laughs) Right now. Right now is a really good time to take stock and think about how much runway do you have from a time standpoint And from a financial standpoint, and what do you need and what's going to be your plan B and what's going to be your plan C? You know, you're seeing it, especially when with so many conferences that are canceling, you're seeing that ripple effect in that regard. And and I'm seeing it here. I live in Brooklyn and I'm seeing it here and I'm thinking, huh, maybe I have been in a little bit of a bubble because I went to the store and it's like, we are out of basically everything. (laughs) I mean, and I was like, I didn't realize I needed to start stocking up on girls. <laughs> the shelves at Costco are empty. It's like, I'm like, is this the end of the world? I like, know. What's happening? <laughs> and it makes me feel like, well, maybe I'm not taking this as seriously as I should be. So if you feel like you two are like a deer in a headlight, <laughs> let's all snap out of it and really put together what's going to be our contingency plan if this really, really does become a catastrophe. And hopefully, if we put together this contingency plan, this business continuity plan, we will never, ever have to use it. But the exercise of doing it, I think, can be really beneficial because it'll cause you to ask yourself some questions around what will it take to operate your business if, if you are not able to do the work or if some of your team members are not able to do the work. And it will also, you know, perhaps prompt you in terms of how can you be more creative Um, if your clients start to pull back, how can you get more creative either about filling the hole that they're leading or working with them in a different way so that they don't have to pull back entirely? I think this would be a good time to kind of reach out to your financial team too. If you can, don't pay attention to what's happening in the stock market day to day. If you don't need the cash, this is actually a great time to buy. And so unless you are actually looking at the market from that standpoint, don't look at it day to day because you're only going to drive yourself crazy when you see that, you know, in one day it went from being down 1800 points to being down, I don't know, 1200 points, you know, it's, it's, it's just crazy. So if you can avoid uh, paying attention to the volatility within the day, absolutely do that. If you can't, then only pay attention to where did it close? That's awesome advice. This situation has really just made me think about all of the things that you're saying. And then also another aspect of community, right? Totally agree with that. Pay attention to who you're voting for, 
from the standpoint of do they have policies in place or plans in place to help support small businesses? A lot of small businesses are concerned with what may happen if you know, the worst does happen and their, and their businesses are not able to thrive. And so one of the things that um, you know, New York City's small business uh, services community is considering is providing interest-free loans if you can prove that your business has suffered a 25%, and don't hold me to this number, but I think it's accurate, a 25% decline in business because of all of the panic. And yet, on a federal level, the answer to that is a proposed income, like a payroll cut. Well, if you're the business owner, that payroll cut probably is not going to really help you. Yeah. And so yeah. you want to make sure that I think this heightens the importance of making sure that you are voting into office, whether it's local, state, or federal, people that truly indeed have at heart the needs of small businesses in addition to large businesses, because we make up the majority of the economy, and yet so much of the policies that are put in place are not really meant to help us when we need it. Right. So we need to ask more questions of our elected officials and those that are running because that's not always the question that we hear people talking about for sure. Exactly. Exactly. I think we've identified so many opportunities for people to kind of look into, you know, their personal finances, their their business plan. How can they dig a little deeper? So I know that you do a pricing retreat workshop and I know you do that um, in person and you do it online, which is like a wonderful thing right now. When we all look at our businesses, it's kind of like, okay, what do I do online? It doesn't require people to come out, right? It's like, oh, oh my God, but can I tell you, I resisted it for so long um, because I, when I first launched the pricing retreat, which was in February of 2019, it was in person and I had the vision that it always had to be in person. But I kept getting feedback of, I really want to do this, but I don't want to come to New York. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Like, All right. <laughs> I will listen to the feedback. <laughs> yes. Because your customers will tell you what they Absolutely. want. And Absolutely. And sometimes we're stuck and, well, I don't want to do it that way. Well, then right. I guess you don't want to make money. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Like, how many times do you hear, need to hear this before you're like, oh, like yeah. one moment. <laughs> it has to click, right? Yeah. So tell me about the pricing retreat. Like, first of all, how do I know if I'm experiencing an issue with my pricing model? And, and then tell me how can I uh, do that workshop with you? Okay. So I think all of us that have a business, you know, find ourselves at some point asking the question, what should I charge for this? So literally, if you're not asking that, you ought to be asking it. And I think the, the trigger for whether or not, you know, this is something that you should consider is the answer that you come up with for that question. Do you right. feel confident when you say, what should I charge for this? Do you feel confident that you are indeed, you know, pricing for profit, price, pricing for sustainability, pricing um, that is tied to the value that you're bringing to the table? And pricing in such a way, again, that I mentioned before, that your business's success translates into your, the success of your personal financial health too. And I would bet that when people think about it, um, they would probably, if they were answering honestly, 
question, like, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> right, right. Um, and I think the tricky part is, you know, one of the things that I remind people of, there's there four four reasons I believe that makes pricing hard. One, the question, what should I charge for this? That's a ubiquitous question. But the answer to it is very unique. Like two people can offer the exact same service and offer a different price point for that service for a variety of different reasons. And that's no different than, you know, two airlines leaving from the same airport, going to the same airport and charging differently for the seats on their plane. The Mm -hmm. answer is not ubiquitous. It is unique. So that's one of the reasons it's hard. It's also hard because I've mentioned before, we tend to, you know, think that we're supposed to approach uh, pricing in the same way that we approach money, which is really logical, but there's nothing exclusively logical about it at all. It's very emotional. The other thing that makes pricing hard is that we can sometimes conflate how we feel about the price that we charge with the way that the people that are actually paying that price, how they feel about it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that projection is not healthy. And I think the biggest one that makes pricing hard is on, on a very surface level, pricing is very binary, right? On one end, it's either right or wrong. If you get it wrong, you know it because you're struggling and you're worrying about finances. If you get it right, you're like, yeah, this is awesome. I feel good about the price I'm charging. They feel good about the price that they're paying. And the way that shows up is you've got a business that's profitable. It's cash flow positive. But then again, when you go beneath the hood, it's not trickling down to you. Right. And so then that begs the question, did you really get the pricing right? So what I do, you know, what I've come up with as an approach to pricing is to A, look at it from three sides, the financial, the emotional, and the personal. And I have a framework where we look at your relationship with money, with yourself, with your business, and with the people that you want to serve, your clients, your customers, and your prospects, and how all of that influences your pricing and how that should be the formula that you use. So even though I'm like, I don't believe in a pricing formula, it's a mathematical formula that I don't believe in, but I do believe in approaching pricing from the standpoint of looking at your personal goals, your business goals, the value that you're bringing to the table and the value that people expect. And that should be a part of how you approach pricing. Excellent. And so everybody, after you do the online pricing workshop, you can get all dolled up and then go to the comfort center. (laughs) to New York City for. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about the comfort dinners that you do. Oh my God, we're in our fourth season and they are a blast. Um, so, you know, each month and our season is January through June, we take off the summer and then we come back in September and we do a dinner in September and October. At the table, you know, we're talking about money, business, and life over food and wine. And every dinner has a different theme to reflect the fact that, you know, <laughs> every, the things, different things affect your life and your business when it comes to money. So we, we factor that in. And although, yes, it's casual because it's a dinner and it's not a workshop, I am who I am. And I want people to walk away with something really concrete that they can implement in their life or in their business. And so regardless of what the theme may be, I do a run of show and that run of show always includes coming up with questions and exercises. And I come to the table with my index cards and my Sharpies and, you know, people can use however many index cards they want. Just give me back my Sharpie. (laughs) (laughs) I know, Sharpies are expensive. You know, exactly. (laughs) Just give me back my 
sharpie. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. So I got I guide the dinner discussion so that you know it's not just you know free flowing. It's a combination of that, but it's very structured in that I am facilitating the conversation around the theme again with question prompts and exercises and whatever folks write down. That's what they, you know, have on their index card. That's what they take away. And we conclude every dinner with a, you know, round robin of what are you going to do in the next seven days and what are you going to do in the next 30 days? Got it. And so what is the feedback that you get that from people who have done the dinner? Like, what did they learn or do that they didn't expect that impacted their life when, when you kind of circle back with that? Well, you know, I think the best way to answer that is the number of people that have come to multiple dinners. I've, have, I've had one person that's come to nine dinners. I've had another that's come to maybe six. Another one just last month, this was her third dinner. I think that's a testimony to people are getting something out of it and it's not always perhaps what they expected. That's A. B, I love the fact that at every dinner, I'm meeting someone that I've never met before. And I'm like, how'd you know about the dinner? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, so it's I funny like how that. people find you or like, how did you find me? And they'll say, oh, I Googled you. I'm like, oh my God, Google works. I know, exactly. <laughs> I love when that happens. Or I love, you know, when they're like, oh, so-and-so told me about the dinner. Yeah. Or, you know, someone retweeted a tweet of yours and therefore I decided I wanted to come. Got it. That's perfect. So you can go online and do the pricing model. You can go online and order uh, Jack Hat's book, Financial Intimacy. And then when you're finished reading that, you can go to the comfort dinner and, and, and you're good for 2020. <laughs> you know? <laughs> we got your money right on the home front and in business. Yes. Yay. <laughs> Tell folks about the book really quick because, I mean, I think that is the foundation of the the work that people can really kind of do on their own, like read that book and really see your, yourself kind of reflected in, in, in the stories they'll read in that book. So talk about that for a minute. Sure. So with financial intimacy, I explore the intersection of love and money and love and money on a romantic standpoint. So the book looks at the intersection of love and money through the lens of what has happened over the last 40 years, socially, politically, economically, and in terms of family dynamics that has shaped how we show up in relationship when it comes to money. What are our expectations and where do those expectations stem from? What are our beliefs? Where does that stem from? Where, what about our values? And how those things bump up against one another um, when we come into a relationship with someone else. And you know, one of the things that I discovered in doing the research is that more often than not, you are going to attract the person that is your financial opposite. So if you are a saver, they're going to be a spender. If you are a spender, they're going to be a saver. And if it is the case that you both happen to be of the same type, one of you will scale back. And the thing that I found fascinating about that, I was like, you know, since I believe in God, I'm like, that's God's way of putting you with somebody that's going to make you grow. (laughs) (laughs) I know that's right. (laughs) But isn't every relationship, I mean, that is with money. Yeah, yeah totally. I have learned so much about myself yes. through my relationship with absolutely. money. So I get absolutely. it. So yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The clarion call for getting people to understand, 
hey, you know what, by the way, you can't actually create this with someone else unless you're in the process of creating it with yourself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Start with, everything starts with you. It starts with you. It starts with you. And it doesn't mean that anybody has to show up to the table perfect because that's just unreasonable, even though that's sometimes the expectation that we have. But at least if you are in the process of inquiry and curiosity about what it is that's happening in your life and why do you show up the way that you do, it can help you with asking questions of another person that doesn't come across as judgmental, but comes across as, I'm really curious because this is what I do and why I do it. I want to understand why you do what you do so that we can come to a common ground. So let me give you a really really good example. And this wasn't in the book, but this is a former coaching client. They lived together for four years. And while they were living together, everything was 50-50. After they got married, the friction started unfolding around money because she was expecting that they would then move to a more proportional relationship or, you know, split. Mm-hmm. And part based of that income. was based on income. Mm-hmm. Okay. And part of that stemmed from the fact that she grew up in a household. Her, you know, her parents were together. Her father was an entrepreneur. Her mom was a stay-at-home mom. But her, her mom actually handled all of the money, both for the business and for the household. So she saw things together. He, on the other hand, grew up in a divorced household. Both of his parents were professionals. And he would split his time between the two. And he never saw them, let let alone talk about money. He never saw them pull together money. Like none of that was ever a part of the equation. Right. So when she started bringing these, these, you know, things up, well, why don't we have a joint account? Why aren't we doing this together? Why aren't we splitting things differently? He was like, I don't understand. We did this for four years. It was not a problem. Why (laughs) Why were things supposed to change because we got married? And for her, it was like, well, why wouldn't they change? We're now married. And we only did that because we were living together. And, we, you know, we didn't have this formal commitment vis-a-vis marriage. Right. And what they both did not understand and did not see was that, you know, while they had one way of being with one another while they were living together, once they crossed that threshold and they were like, oh, we're a married couple now, they didn't have the understanding of recognizing that they both had different expectations of what would happen financially once they got married. Mm. And people do, that's just one example. And that's, you know, I think a, a fairly um, mundane one because they're still married and they're happily married and they figured it all out. Um, and they're a wonderful couple and they refer people to me, to me. So that's fantastic. But I think that that happens all the time. Like we don't, you know, there's this myth that says we don't talk about money. I actually think we talk about money all the time. I just don't think we're having the right conversations. And that's a great example. Yes, yes, that is so, so good because you are walking around with this whole narrative in your head based on a vision of what you saw in someone else's marriage that has nothing to do with the marriage that you were actually in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh, that's great. Okay, guys, that, that, that is worth all of, all of the workshops right there. You're, you're saving lives and marriages out here. Oh my God. Money should never be the only reason why people separate, in my opinion. Absolutely. So I have a couple more questions and then I'm going to let you go. So it's all about productivity, time management tips, because I feel like we all have the same 24 hours. 
Um, the same 24 hours is Oprah. I always use her as our example. Somebody who's making money in their sleep, right? Um, <laughs> but she may be doing something that I'm not doing with that 24 hours. Or as a businesswoman, you've been in business as long as I've known you. Is there anything that you make sure that you do in your 24 hours that moves your business forward? There are a couple of things. So one thing that I do is I block my days. So for example, typically if I'm not traveling for a speaking engagement, uh, my coaching days are Monday, Tuesdays, and Thursdays. So that's one approach to protecting my time, if you will, and getting the most out of my 24 hours. So I block my days. And when I'm not doing a coaching session, I tend to work in 90-minute increments. So that allows me to just be focused on whatever the task is that I'm working on and not trying to like code switch, if you will, from task to task, which then, you know, dissipates your energy and your focus, if you will. So those are two things just in terms of... um, a time, quote unquote, management. On the personal front though, you know, I'm not going to say I do it every single day, but you know, five days out of the week, I make sure that I spend some time meditating and journaling. I make sure that I get in my 16 to 18 miles a week running. Sometimes that's spread over five days. Sometimes it's spread over four days. Those are the things that I do to help me manage my time. Excellent. Excellent. Final question. This podcast is called Built by a Boss. You are a true boss lady. What is your definition of a boss, Jacquette Timmons? My definition of a boss, it's almost like feeling comfortable in your own skin and not feeling like because somebody else may be doing it differently and may or may not be making more that you need to shift. I think bosses are people that are really comfortable in their message of their business, the mission of their business, and the way that they have chosen their business model, their sales process, their pricing strategies, the ways that they have chosen to actually put that out into the world. Very nice. I want to make sure everybody knows how to find you. Drop a little bit of that info on us. It will also be in the notes, of course. So I want to offer to the Built by a Boss listeners, um, go to the website, um, specifically jacquettetimmons.com forward slash wheel. Download that exercise. It's a free exercise. It's called the Financial Wheel Exercise. And what it will help you do is to discover the extent to which you are using your money by design versus by default. That is really illuminating for a lot of people. Nice. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, it's an exercise also in connecting with your financial vision. And I think the benefit of doing that is once you do it, you can then juxtapose that against the current snapshot of your business and ask yourself the question, if you change nothing about your business, would your business over time be able to help you fulfill that vision? So that's something that your folks can do. Nice. Um, and then in terms of following me on social media, I love me some Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Instagram, great. <laughs> I love me some Instagram. And I just let chuckle at myself because I'm relatively new to it. I only started doing it four years ago. 
And I was like, oh, man, I should have started doing this a long time ago. <laughs> I know you are always making a video. I'm like, I start, I've just started making videos, too. But it's just kind of like. <laughs> oh, my God. So I love Instagram. And I'm also fairly active on Twitter as well. So, you know, just put my name in those search boxes and my respective handles will come up. Absolutely. Well, make sure that you get in touch with Jacquette for all of the things that we talked about today, because she is truly a boss and a great person and just fun, as you can tell from our conversation. So thank you so much, Jacquette, for talking with us today. Oh my God. Thank you so much for having me. I have had a ball. I'm Evelyn Brooks, and you've been listening to Built by a Boss. I hope you enjoy the show. You can subscribe at Apple, Spotify, or your favorite place. Please consider giving us a five-star review and a comment. It really helps other people find us who might like the podcast. Let us know if this information helps you, what people you'd like to hear from, and what topics you'd want us to cover. You can follow us on Instagram and visit our website, And you can find me at In My Solitude LA, where I create intention and goal setting workshops. I'll be at Mom Congress in Washington, D.C. on Sunday, May 3rd. So be sure to sign up for that event. Also, if you're a female owned brand with a message that is in line with the Built by a Boss podcast, we'd love to have you as a sponsor. So reach out to us. Finally, thank you so much for tuning in. I truly appreciate you. Until next time, be kind, be brave, be better, be a boss.